Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, a lot of things in between. I'm Jessica Levinson, a professor at Loyola Law School and host of the show. Joining me today is the show's co-host and producer, Joe Armstrong. Joe, we've got a lot of January 6th news for everybody today. We certainly do, Jessica. That take place almost a year and a half ago, but we're still talking about it. And why, you may ask, we are going to give you an update on the ongoing January 6th hearings that are taking place in Washington, D.C. Now, these hearings were originally supposed to end in June, but some progress is being made. Some people were doubtful as to whether or not that would be the case. But like so many other investigations, if you tug on one thread, you discover that that thread is connected to many, many other threads. And sometimes things unravel completely. So, Jessica, at this point, Why are the hearings still taking place, given that they were supposed to end several weeks ago at this point? I think it's in part based on what you said, which is this is an investigation where whenever you find new facts or there's a witness who's suddenly willing to testify or the witness is willing to testify to more than what you expected, you follow that. And so this isn't predetermined. It truly is based on what facts are heard and what documents are uncovered. And in this case, I think, frankly, one of the big moments that really changed a lot in this hearing and in this investigation is when Cassidy Hutchinson, um, that comparatively, sorry, three, two, one. And I think in this case, one of the things that really changed things is when Cassidy Hutchinson, who was the aide to former chief of staff Mark Meadows, testified in that bombshell, you know, last minute, like scheduled at the very last minute hearing. And she talked about how former President Trump said things like, I know that people at the rally at the ellipse are armed, but get rid of the metal detectors because they're not here to hurt me, showing that he knew, apparently, that there were people who did have weapons, he was sending these people to the Capitol, saying that they needed to take back our country. And not to mention the fact that the former president had apparently tried to assault a Secret Service agent because he wanted to go to the Capitol and be part of the violence and the events of that day. I mean, that really was a moment where I think things changed and it has now led to, I think, more people being willing to talk as well. Okay, we've seen a number of these hearings, and we know that there are more to come. But before we get into that, how about this week's hearing? What did they set out to accomplish? And by they, I mean the committee. I think they're continuing to try and do what they've done throughout these hearings, which is really connect dots between who knew what and when. And we heard about possible connections between the Trump White House, its allies, and far-right extremist groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. We even heard from former members of the Oath Keepers, one of whom has actually been charged in connection with the Capitol riot. And we all know ultimately what happened on January 6, 2021, but the big legal question is what Trump and his top aides knew and expected or even wanted to happen. And did people from Trump world specifically coordinate and facilitate the actions that were taken by the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers? And if so, you know, the Department of Justice would like a word. One thing, Joe, I thought was interesting is that I heard Representative Adam Schiff, who is on the House Select Committee, saying in TV interviews this week that 
he feels the House Select Committee, I'm paraphrasing, is basically way out ahead of the Department of Justice. And I think what he's really giving voice to is the frustration that a lot of people are feeling of what is happening in the Department of Justice. And we're now at a point where I think Attorney General Merrick Garland would have to explain not why he charges the former president or his top aides, but if he doesn't, why he failed to come forward with those charges. That's how compelling I think these hearings have been. At the beginning of this last week of hearings, Representative Liz Cheney said that Team Trump has embarked on a new strategy when it comes to defending the actions of the former president. Those are my words, not hers exactly. But what was she talking about when she said that? Well, she was actually talking about how effective the hearings have been and that Trump world is taking this new tact in response to the fact that we have now heard from basically every high-ranking Trump administration official who at least agreed to comply with a subpoena that they told the president there was no widespread election fraud and don't go out there and claim there is widespread election fraud and you cannot, there's not a path to try and win this election. And that caused, according to Liz Cheney, and I think we see this in the hearings, that caused a new strategy, basically, for Trump world. And now they're pivoting and saying, well, the former president was just listening to these outside people, and they've been called in the hearings the crazies, people like Sidney Powell, people like Mike Lindell, the Maya Pillow guy. So Team Trump is basically, I think, trying to blame those outside the administration for the words that Liz Cheney used were poorly advising the former president. But Cheney also said very clearly, Trump can't use bad advice as an excuse. And she reminded us that the former president, more than the rest of us, had access to information, detailed information showing that the election was not stolen. And Cheney left us with two options. She said Trump is either irrational and insane or he knew exactly what he was doing. She has this line that's been quoted a lot, no rational or sane man in his position could disregard the evidence. And so she's basically saying, you're either going to find that he's mad, not angry, but insane, or that he knew full well what he was doing and could be criminally liable. Okay, Jessica, one thing I've observed from keeping up on these hearings is that people from the Trump realm are now revealing a bevy of information that would have been awfully helpful for the rest of us to know on January 5th or 6th or 7th. And we all know there was an entire impeachment hearing in the aftermath of January 6th insurrection. But these people didn't say anything at the time. So what changed for them? Uh, Book deals and subpoenas. I mean, truly, it is astonishing to me when I'm sitting there watching these hearings. I've been live blogging them for MSNBC, shameless plug. And I'm looking at these depositions, the recorded depositions. There's Bill Barr, you know, laughing. Oh, of course, there was no basis here. And there's White House counsel Pat Cipollone saying, we told the president that, you know, there was no widespread fraud. And we told him that these theories that, again, the outside crazies were bringing him, that they were dangerous. And I'm just thinking to myself, where were you? Where were you on, as he said, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh? And apparently what it takes is being put under oath. And they had every opportunity. These were people in 
positions of great power. They had every opportunity to grab a microphone and tell people what they thought might happen before the election, what they thought might happen before January 6th or after to try and clear up the record. But instead, they just stayed silent. They didn't tell us the president is talking about trying to use the military to seize election machines. They had the bully pulpit and they just didn't take it. They didn't protect us. They waited until they were legally forced to tell the story. And now, you know, it's it's hard to stomach. They're kind of yucking it up on camera like, oh, my gosh, can you believe this crazy, dangerous theory? It would have been wonderful for them to alert us of that um, before they were legally required to do so. Jessica, these people were in the room, literally, figuratively. I would argue they had a responsibility to tell us those things. But as you said, they're too busy doing their book tour prep. So, Jessica, I think we know the answer to this question. But with the stakes higher and their own well-being in peril, they seem to have found some extra wells of courage somewhere down in their constitutions. So what did the committee help to reveal about Trump's state of mind on January 6th? That's a very specific question, I know. Yeah, so we've talked about this a little bit, but I think it bears repeating that there's basically two big takeaways for me. And we'll talk about the big, big takeaways after the hearing. But one is that Trump was told over and over again by members of his administration that there's no basis for claiming the election was stolen and that he really could not have believed otherwise. And again, that's consistent with the opening statement that Liz Cheney made that we just talked about. The other thing is that despite being told that, despite the information going in, here's the information that came out of President Trump, which is he took to social media to claim the election was stolen. Despite all evidence to the contrary, he was speaking directly and implicitly to these right-wing organizations and really inciting an uprising based on a lie. And, you know, Joe, we knew it, but to hear the evidence laid out this carefully, it still is startling. Okay, Jessica, the cognitive dissonance at this point is just blinding. This is a very heavy sentence I'm about to say, but do these latest revelations mean that Trump himself could be guilty of inciting an insurrection? So maybe. And I think the reason I'm saying maybe is in part because we just haven't seen anything stick criminally when it comes to the former president, in part because of how he uses language, how he doesn't put anything in writing, how he you know speaks in coded messages. But all evidence, as we were just saying, all evidence indicates that Trump fully knew and understood there was no basis for his claims that there was fraud in the election, that the election was stolen, and then that he fully knew he was ginning up this angry, violent mob who were really this kind of militia group of conspiracy theorists and that they were going to storm the Capitol and try and overturn the election. And again, he's explicitly and implicitly calling for these far-right militia groups, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, that they had to, you know, quote-unquote, stop the steal. I mean, Joe, I remember you and I talked about this, I think, after one of the um, debates, after one of the presidential debates, where he said to the Oath Keepers, or the Proud Boys, excuse me, he said, you know, stand back, but stand by. 
And I think it was in response to a question of, will you accept the outcome of the election if you don't win? So the former president was telling us in daylight on TV with the cameras rolling what his plans were. Now, there was a witness, um, a former spokesperson for the Oath Keepers, and he testified that we were essentially on the brink of a civil war on January 6th. There was a Capitol rioter, Stephen Ayers, who testified that if Trump had told them to leave, they would have. And Joe, I think that matters because it shows that Trump sent them there and he could have sent them away. Um, so what do we need to do to get back to your question? We need to look at the applicable federal criminal code provision. There's one provision that I've been thinking about a lot. I'll quote from it. It says, whoever incites, sets on foot, assists or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof, or gives aid or comfort thereto, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 10 years or both. And here's one of the really key parts, Joe, and shall be incapable of holding any office under the United States. So you better believe the Department of Justice is looking at that. I don't know where I come out in terms of whether or not we will actually see criminal charges. I have to say, I kind of doubt it, even though I think enough facts are there. All right. So we've talked about this and around this, but bring us up to date, kind of give us a little bit of a summary about this last week's hearing and up to this point. What were your biggest takeaways from this week's hearing? Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway, again, Trump knew there was no fraud, or if he didn't know, he really cannot understand basic facts. And I don't say that lightly, that members of his administration, again, many different members told him over and over again, he decided to push forward with these lies that the 2020 election was stolen. And he directed a mob to storm the Capitol. And then what happened? They did, in fact, storm the Capitol. And then what happened, despite people telling him, and this is what we'll hear more next, despite people telling him, tell this group to leave, even after violence broke out, that it was hours and hours later that he finally said, you're very special, we love you, but go home. And that he could have taken control. He took control to send them, and he could have taken control to tell them to leave. But he didn't do that. Okay, we're going to veer into a different lane for just a second here and talk about Steve Bannon, who strikes kind of a Rasputin-esque figure in this whole Trump administration. His trial for contempt of Congress for not showing up for his subpoena for this uh, 1-6 commission is slated to begin next week. Can you give us a quick update on what the status of that is? What is his fate going to be? Yes. So there was a hearing. There have been a number of pretrial hearings this week, and Steve Bannon keeps asking for a delay in trial. And at this point, the judge keeps saying no. The Monday hearing earlier this week was really a loss for Steve Bannon. He wasn't there, but basically everything he argued, the judge said you no to that, no to that. And it was so bad that in open court, the reporting is that Steve Bannon's attorney said, well, what's the point in going to trial if you don't have any defense? Now, the answer, of course, is if the prosecutors have come forward with such a strong case, then you take a deal if there's a deal being offered. And if not, then you put on the best case that you can while making sure that you don't violate any legal ethics codes in doing so. And so what happened recently? Recently, Steve Bannon said, 
Oh, just kidding. I can testify because Trump has said that he won't claim executive privilege over much of what I would testify to. Now, Joe, it's a little coincidental that this is happening. What was it at this point when the news broke? I think it was eight days before the trial was supposed to start. And so I think what Steve Bannon is frankly trying to do is he's left with just the idea that he doesn't have the facts to argue in front of the jury. He doesn't have the law to argue in front of the jury. So he's going to try and argue, well, there's just no harm here. He's going to try and say, look, I either testified or I will testify or I offered to testify. And I'm only here in court because I refuse to comply with a subpoena to testify, but I'm going to do that. Now, legally, that's an irrelevant argument because the harm occurred when he basically dared the House Select Committee to refer him for criminal charges because he did not comply in any way with a subpoena and just came forward instead with this ridiculous claim of executive privilege, even though he wasn't part of the administration at the time. So he's not helping himself, although I think it's the last tool in his tool shed, so to speak. It will be interesting if he does actually testify, if he's just going to get up there and plead the Fifth Amendment, which is the right against self-incrimination over and over again. And so this is one of the things, Joe, we're watching when it comes to Steve Bannon, which is obviously related to what we've been talking about, um, because it all stems from the January 6th House Select Committee investigation. Okay, so let's get back into those hearings. We already know that there is another hearing scheduled next week for prime time. Some sources believe that it will be a big one. Have you heard anything about this? What can we expect at this next week's hearing? So I think the fact that they've set it for 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern means that they do want a lot of viewership, that they do expect that there will be big news. And right now the reporting is that we're going to hear more about the actual day, January 6th, and the time period in which the writers were actually in the Capitol. And when people were coming to talk to the former president, I think he was in the residence saying, call them off, do something. And Jamie Raskin, who's also on the House Select Committee, Representative Raskin said, our hearing next week will be a profound moment of reckoning for America. So I think that's what we're going to hear more about, which is we've heard the whole lead up to what the president was told, to what he said to people, setting all of this in motion. And now I think we're going to focus on the actual day and the actual violence and the fact that the president didn't call anybody off until much later. Okay, thank you, Jessica. But before we go, I have one more question or at least a set of related questions. And the main one here is, does any of this actually matter? The House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy was given the opportunity to have Republicans on these panels, but he declined to do so, and by doing so, essentially denied Team Trump the ability to respond to the findings of this commission in these hearings. The hearings are revealing things that illuminate a coup attempt at the highest levels of our government, but is anyone other than the anti-Trumpers, the Democrats, etc., paying attention to these hearings? So who knows what he will do, but Trump is poised to jump into the presidential race for 2024, some sources say as early as late summer or early fall. So in light of all of these things, will these hearings matter? Is there going to be an appreciable effect on our society and public sentiment when it comes to Trump and when it comes to the January 6th insurrection? Perhaps the most remarkable thing I'm going to say is that I don't know, because of course it should. Even if you support former President Trump's policies such as they were, 
There are other Republicans in the field, and the idea that there's a group that continues so vehemently to support somebody who really tried to undermine our country and the rule of law, and we frankly didn't need these hearings to know that, and that he's the presumptive frontrunner for the presidential nomination, I mean, that is just stunning to me. So will it matter politically? I don't know. It's going to depend on what the world looks like. Reporting is that he might announce before the midterms that he's running because he wants that to have an effect on the midterm elections. We, of course, don't know if it will have the effect that he wants. But we also know that polling indicates this week that President Biden, I think, has polled at numbers lower than President Trump did at any time during his presidency. And so the Democrats do not have a strong leader at this point. And a lot of this will come down to other issues, some of which are within a president's control and some of which are not, like the economy, like inflation, jobs. And I wish I could say, of course, this means that former President Trump politically, his career's over. But I think all evidence to the contrary. And Jessica, let's not forget when it comes to the midterms, this is all taking place in the recent aftermath of the Dobbs decision that rescinded federally protected abortion rights for women across our country. Some 26 states at some point may make abortion illegal, some or completely. So it's going to be a very interesting situation to see how this rolls through the elections this fall. And thank you for talking about all these things with me. I look forward to having more conversations with you, Jessica. Where can, uh, where can people read your latest writings about these and other topics? Before I tell them, what do you think? Is it going to make a difference? I think it's going to make a difference. Man, that is the billion-dollar question. The latest polling that I have read is that the situation is turning a little bit. Some people expected, given Biden's weakness going into these midterms, and historically speaking, the opposition party always gains seats in the midterm elections when the president is a Democrat, the Republicans pick up seats, and vice versa. But one of the people that I read about said there's perhaps a decoupling happening that may not take place this time around. The traditional logic that has played for the last 20 years might not prove to be the case. So it remains to be seen. I don't know either. But polling indicates that it might be changing. The abortion situation certainly changes the numbers and changes the game a little bit. The voting numbers, I know, are traditionally lower in non-presidential elections. But people are very engaged on both sides, on the Republican side and on the Democrat side. People are engaged. The voters want to get out there and cast their votes. So it will be a very interesting situation in the next, I guess, 12 weeks, Jessica. And we will certainly talk about all this for all of our listeners. And I look forward to hearing what your input is on all these things as well. Thank you. We have some good guests coming up that we're excited about. So it's not just us, even though I do love these episodes. And in answer to your question, people can find me across the socials, as you say, at Levinson Jessica. And they can find you across the socials at In-Depth Day. I think that does it for us. Oh, Jessica, there's one last thing. It's never just us. I love the shows that we make together. So let's leave people with that. Have a great weekend, everybody. 